Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, Salem Heights. Aren't you glad to be in church this morning? Yeah. I have, uh, I've been looking forward to this series that we're about to start uh, this morning for a little while for, uh, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, but in order to prepare us for it, I, I wanted to start with a question and then we'll highlight the uh, title and why we're here. Uh, the question that's been in my mind all this last week uh, preparing for this morning is, when is the right time to have a kid? I'm going to say in my house right now, uh, right now is not the right time for Christina and I. There's a lot of reasons for that. But uh, recent statistics tell us uh, the cost to raise a kid from age zero to 18 is over $300,000 right now nationwide. Nationwide. In the Northwest, probably a little less because there's some more landscape you can just send them out into. But uh, it's not just the financial cost, though. Um, If you ask the average parent, Uh, There is a cost uh, in the change of lifestyle, the work schedule, and your daily appearance, right? All of those get wrecked as a result of children. Nonetheless, in this last two years, post-pandemic, there is something where they are anticipating a drop of 500,000 children being born. That was the professional's assessment of what would happen as a result of what they were seeing uh, in the hospitals. Instead, they are now calling it the two-year baby bump. 6% rise in the amount of births, the largest since 2007. People are choosing to have children despite all of the chaos that's going on around us. And so it turns out that when you're talking about having a child or starting a family uh, or participating in the great joy that it is to have uh, little ones, fear and financial concerns are not the only factors. Amen? There's fellowship. There is joy. Um, When we talk about the hard cost about it, we talk about it jokingly knowing that the real beauty of family is found in the sacrifice Uh, that you share together the beauty of daily life, the enjoyment of your time together. It's not just measured in Christmases and Thanksgivings, postcards and pictures. It's measured in a, a total value to life where we grow as we sacrificially walk with others. It's a profound gift. So we are starting a series today that uh, is going to incorporate sacrificial Uh, ideas and sacrificial giving. We're starting a series today, uh, Ancient Wells, New Season, where we are going to talk about not only some biblical themes, but about a need that is present in our church and has been for a while to improve our current building and add on. I just want to just collectively have all of you take a deep breath real quick, all right? Some of you actually have told me the reason that you are here at this church right now is because another church was in the middle of a building campaign and all they talked about was money. Okay? Amen can go there. I understand the fears and I understand the concerns. 
Uh, I, I've uh, had some of those myself. What is it that we are going to do as God continues to add to the people who find Salem Heights Church as their home? Who don't just come here uh, and participate on Sundays, but across the board, who are buying in, participating in community, investing in those around, uh, beginning to develop deep relationships. You really are a family. And as the family is growing, what are we going to do with the number of folks that we have here? Not just Sunday morning, but the biggest benefit in our church are the relationships that happen outside of Sunday morning. Amen? How are we going to advance those things? We have a scriptural mandate in the New Testament. Old Testament, they had some promises and a mandate for them that required them to stay in the land, to have a a temple and a worship process until the Messiah came, Jesus came. But we also in the New Testament have a mandate. That mandate is to go and make disciples. We're seeing that happen. People that are coming to Christ that are not just in love with him, but are developing relationships. The evidence of the spirit and the life of the individual is everywhere. It's all over this place. But there are unscripted problems that we get. So we have a scriptural mandate, but the unscripted problems are the concern. You see it even in the New Testament at the very beginning. What do they run into as the church begins to grow? It says, and we aren't told that they'd started a program, they had a new pastor that was over uh, those that were in need or the the widows or the sacrificial giving committee. We, We don't have that anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We have in Acts chapter six a problem. In the daily portion, as they were giving out to those that were in need, there was a group of people who felt overlooked. How are we going to better administrate to those that are coming to the church for need? Acts chapter 6, they, as a response to the Lord, uh, the mandate that they were giving, and a response to uh, just praying and laying it before him, came up with a, a group of men that would later be called deacons. Paul would actually give them a job description that would come later, but they were an identified group in the church that was there to be able to meet a need, unscripted problem. It's not just with uh, widows and those in need. What do you do with church plants? What do you do when you go and you plant a church in Corinth? What kind of people do you leave behind in Corinth to lead that place? Paul gives a description of that in 1 Timothy 3. So you have unscripted problems, but then you have scriptural principles and and inspiration. There are things that the scriptures highlight. What is it that should be guiding us? When we take a look at the needs that are going to be in the room, uh, I I want you to be aware we're going to begin and end with this idea. We are a church that doesn't pass a plate. We don't pass a plate because we truly believe not only that God loves a cheerful giver, but that the leadership team should not be overseeing, watching, investigating those who are uh, desiring to give. That's between you and the Lord. That same belief system is what we're going to carry all the way through this. But we also believe that God has created a community here that wants to invest not just in this place, but invest in our community and make a difference. And so we're leaning into that idea in this series, what we're going to do for two weeks, we're going to just cover some scriptural principles and ideas that should be in our heart, things that we should be praying about as we consider, Lord, what would my part be both financially and physically? How am I going to commit 
to what God has called Salem Heights Church to be about. I'm going to ask you just for a couple of weeks to look at the scriptural principles, some of those ideas. In July, we're actually going to bring out some of the details. What does the building look like? What are the things that we're going to have to shoot for when it comes to uh, financial um, backing? Where are we looking for help? What has God done to bring other people alongside, not just Salem Heights Church, to aid in that effort? And then in the fall, uh, we're actually going to have uh, our, our campaign. Um, for those of you that were here for the last one, those of you who by faith helped put this building together, uh, you know that uh, we, we didn't hire uh, consultants in the same way. Uh, we didn't do messages every single week on this. Uh, this building was built by faith and we are asking God in the exact same way to move in his people to build the next one by faith, debt-free, short-term debt, and then on to what that is next. So what are the principles that we should be, are we okay right now? Yeah, you guys are doing all right. You're real serious. You are so thoughtful for service, uh, which is actually concerning me. Genesis chapter 26, and uh, um, my apologies to the slides, folks. I didn't tell you that we weren't gonna go through the whole entire thing right at the beginning. I'm just gonna cover verses one through 11 with my first point, and then 12 through 22 with the second. If you can keep up, that's cool. If not, bless you for uh, taking direction from the stage. Uh, aren't you thankful for the people that serve week in and week out behind the scenes at our church? I want us to see a couple of things from something uh, that is in scripture here. And what we are doing is we're developing uh, our emphasis from a picture that comes up all the way through scripture. In scripture from the beginning, uh, when God is talking about refreshment, spiritual refreshment in life or even a settled heart, and when he's talking about new life or salvation, when he's talking about an eternal relationship with himself, he uses the picture of water. Springs of living water, calm waters, David said, is what uh, the Lord leads us to uh, when we are a nervous sheep. And that river of life coming from the throne uh, of God. This picture of water where the Lord is in control and we are sustained is a picture that goes all the way through the scriptures. And we see a significant moment in the life of one of the patriarchs. Uh, as he is trying to find his own way. He understands what the mandate is that God has on his life, but he does not know how to apply those things. And he does something that is not only significant to him, it's informative to us. He goes back in this moment after a series of events have led him to begin to think about his walk with the Lord. He redigs the wells of his father, and he gives them the exact same name. Now, I think there's not just a, a, a plot point here that God is taking up time. God doesn't waste, by the way, words in Scripture. Amen? He's intending for us to consider why was this significant in Isaac's journey and what principle would he have us take from it today? So I want you to hear, first of all, and, and listen to this storyline, this chapter is a chapter of victory, but it doesn't start out that way. You can stay uh, seated for this. Just read in your own Bibles these mo this uh, actual account of what had happened. It says this. 
Genesis 26, 1, it says, there was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines at Gerar. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt and live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien and I will be with you. I will bless you. I will give you all the lands to your offspring and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all of these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham, that's his father, listened to me and kept my mandates, my commands, my statutes and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, before we move beyond that, I just want you to, if you have a a paper Bible there, God bless you. Those things are uh, real. I have one right here. Uh, You can take notes in there. I I would have you put in the side of those notes, Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you've uh, heard that before, this is important. Um, In verse 5 there, because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. Here's a great question for you. What are those four categories? Deuteronomy chapter 11, you see there are four categories in the law. My mandate, my commands, my statutes, my instructions. How in the world could Abraham actually keep the mandates, the commands, the statutes, and instructions before there was a Levite, before Jerusalem was established, before there was a tabernacle or a temple? How could Abraham be seen as completely faithful in every single way that the law, Moses writing this down here, that the law would command them to be faithful in? How could he be seen as completely faithful? You want to know how? Same way as today. The moment that you believe God opens up your life and stuffs into it everything that it means to be righteous. You don't take care of your own righteousness, God does. Amen? That's what he does. Abraham walked right out of the door after having that promise given to him and he fails. And look at what Isaac does. Remember, he's walking in the footsteps of his father. He hears this beautiful promise. I took care of everything that Abraham needed. I'm gonna take care of everything that you need to be faithful. Isaac says, awesome. Next verse, when the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking that the place, uh, the men of this place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. And when Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, came down, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah, and Abimelech sent for Isaac and he said, so she really is your wife. How come you said she's my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might die on account of her. When Abimelech said, what have you done to us? One of these people could have easily slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all of the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Once again, By God's providence, providence is written all over this moment. The man of God was not faithful, but God is faithful. Amen? So he's walking him forward. What does a man who has been shamed by his weakness, who has in his life his faults exposed, who has been told, you are my chosen one to go and accomplish these things, and he falters? How do you make that right? 
In fact, I would pause and I would say that in this room right now, there is a majority of people in their own life who can reflect, maybe even as we are reading that scripture, and you're saying, I remember a moment when I also faltered. I remember a moment when I also knew what God's will was for me and I did something that was harmful to my walk with the Lord or harmful to my spouse or harmful to my family. I made a decision that made God look bad in public. What do you do? I just want you to notice this. At this very beginning stage here, uh, that the test that God uses to reveal a man um, are usually famine and failure. Famine and failure often precede great acts of faith. Same as in Abraham's day, it says. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. Why does it say that? Uh, Because he's giving you a snapshot. Okay, Abraham, this is how it was that I tested and revealed who you were and then how great I am. He does the same thing for Isaac and the same result transpires. Pretty significant. God uses famine and failure to prepare the soil. If you were going to go through scriptures, just write down the names Samson and Jonah and Peter. And what do you think of when you think of their storylines? Failure precedes them having success. They fail in, in quite honestly, blow it type ways. What in the world are you doing in that place, Samson? Jonah, why are you running the opposite direction? God actually gave you a compass that points where he wants you to go. And you said, I'm going the exact opposite. Peter promises, there's no way. Lord God, I wouldn't leave you. And Jesus looks right at him and says, tonight, three times you'll deny that you even know me. But I'll restore you. And when I do, you'll be set. Failure before success. But also, Joseph, Elijah, even Jesus. Famine precedes the revelation of God's man. Joseph... His family found their way back to him because of a famine. Elijah, the nation was being tested and Elijah was shown to be God's man as a famine was in the land. Jesus, Matthew chapter four, right after he is revealed to be God's son, he is driven out into the desert by the spirit of God, it says, and for 40 days, no food. Tested by Satan, revealed to be the one that is the savior. I want you to highlight this, not just in your own life, but this is a culture at our church, all right? This is something that we need to wrap our minds around. Failure is rarely final, okay? I would have you turn to your neighbor and say failure is not final, but you're gonna make eye contact with somebody. Look, failure is not final. You're gonna make eye contact with some people that are in the room right here who might be in the midst today of struggling with that conclusion. Famine and failure precede great acts of faith. But I want you to notice something, uh, another point that is in here. Uh, Before we do that, forgive me, this last week, I've just been battling a little bit with uh, illness and I'm as scattered as any hen house, all right? I'm trying to land all these chickens in my brain right now and they just won't settle. 
Here's the one thing I want you to see. There, there is a report that came out just a little while ago about recession. Recession in our day is equal to famine. When we hear the word recession, we buckle up, we get fearful, we get overwhelmed. We start making different decisions than we normally would. Uh, they highlighted the fact that there's been a recession in uh, every 10-year period since uh, the 20s. 20s and 30s. Recession after recession after recession. Identifiable recessions for the baby boomers. They have gone through 12 identifiable recessions that they would be able to recall. Recession is part of the storyline. It's part of the reset. It is part of our current cultural mix. Famine is always part of the plot. Famine is never the point. Okay? It's always part of the plot. It is never the point. The point is what is God going to do in the men and women of God in the midst of it? Second thing I want us to see. Starting at verse 12, all forward momentum is tied to ancient truth. So what does this man do? He has failed, stumbled. God just promised he appears to him in a dream. How many of us would love to have that interaction with God? We all profess that would change what we would do tomorrow. And now, I haven't seen that happen even in scripture. You interact with Jesus, you still make poor decisions. You interact with the living God, you still walk out and make poor decisions. Why? The sin principle in us overpowers what we know to be true. He walks right out and fails. What's this man to do? He gets saved by outsiders being more holy than him. And so Isaac says, I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to live for him. So Isaac sowed seed in that land. And that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. And the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep and herds of cattle and many slaves. And the Philistines were envious of him. The Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham. By the way, that's written in past tense. They were trying to move him on way before this, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, leave us for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac is living in the land and he's become a great man among them. And when they say much too powerful, that means that just with you and your core heart, you could overrun any of our cities we're concerned. So Isaac agrees. He's kind to them. He left there and he camped in the Gerar Valley and he lived there. And Isaac reopened the wells. This is central. That had been dug in the days of his father Abraham that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given him. When Isaac's servant dug in the valley, they found a well spring of water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen it said, the water is ours. So they named the well Essek because they argued. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that one as well. And he named it Sitna. And then he moved from there and dug another and they did not quarrel over it. And he named it Rehoboth and said, for the Lord has made space for us and we will be fruitful in the land. First thing I want you to notice here, he redug the wells of his father. You could follow Abraham's journeys by the wells that he dug. That's what Warren Wiersbe says. You could follow his journey all the way through. As Abraham settled, he would dig a well in that location and God would meet him and there would be a new discovery of who God is and how faithful he is. At each of those locations, he would give them a name, names like El Elyon in one place or El Shaddai or finally El Olam. 
If you were going to follow Abraham's journey, it would say this, God Almighty, the all-sufficient one, is God Most High. That's the storyline, the plot line of Abraham's life, told through his interactions with the living God as God gives him a new name to call him by in each of those situations. He had shown himself to be faithful to Abraham, and not just to Abraham, but to all those around who would follow the living God. All forward momentum in Abraham's life is tied to ancient truth. God is God and there is no other. Now Isaac was already prone to going to these different locations because he also wanted to have this relationship with God. But in his own life he had not experienced it. Isaac had a brother, Ishmael. Ishmael was the one that had been cast out from him. He was not the son of the promise. He had so much punishment in his life, but Ishmael had something that Isaac did not. There's a story in Ishmael's life that was so profound that God actually showed up and said, I'm gonna make this one into a nation himself. He made a promise to Ishmael. In fact, he, he saved his life, he spared him, brought him from the edge of death with a well. And they named that well the uh, Bir Laharoi, the well of the God who sees. Ishmael said, hey, I, I might be pushed off, but I know that God sees me and he's watching over me and I know that that God is in control. So where does Isaac go? When he wants to find out about his own story, he's been camping at Bir Laharoi. When he was at Bir Laharoi, the well of the God who sees, and he was weeping over the loss of his mom and the change in his circumstances, that's where he was when his wife is brought to him from a distant land. Where do we find him? Even at the beginning of this story, he's out at Bir Laharoi. He wants the God who sees to see him, but he is searching for God. He's not yet had this interaction that he has in chapter 26. This chapter would be the only time that we hear from uh, Isaac solely, where he's the center point of the plot, and he sees God. What does he do? He begins to redig these wells. He doesn't give them brand new names. He says, I go back to El Elyon, the God Almighty. He is still the God that I serve. I go back to El Shaddai, uh, the all-sufficient one. He is still the true God that I serve. I go back to El Olam, the God most high. I still believe in the God who sees me. He goes and redigs those wells. He's not saying I've come up with some new truth. He's saying that ancient truth about God, that is enough for me. And God takes him from that spot and moves him forward. Now this is an important thing. For any church to succeed, for any believer to succeed, you gotta be careful. You cannot start with something where you say, well, I want God to be this, and you come up with some new truth about God, and you worship something that's never been believed before. That's not the calling in Scripture, amen? amen. The calling is to look at an ancient truth. Go back to those ways. See the ancient past, how it is that I revealed myself to them, the truth that I have revealed in Scripture about myself. You cling to those things. That's the God that exists, that saves, and that will walk with you. All forward momentum is tied to ancient truth. Isaac is declaring by redigging the wells of his fathers and saying, These places are where my father interacted with God, and I believe in that exact same God. He is the God that will guide me. Isaac's story would find its significance in God's story. That's super important.
But I want you to notice something else that happens. So he digs those wells and they begin to, to move him off, even though they have uh, water and they begin to expand and he's having success in the land. Um, Isaac has a couple of things happen to him that become a part of his storyline and carries through the rest of the book of Genesis. The act of digging a well, the act of going about this process in this chapter was an investment and a declaration. It was a declaration in this way. God had told him at the very beginning, Isaac, I don't want you to go to Egypt. I want you to see that I have invested in you the same way that I've invested in Abraham. Now, I want you to hear me right now. Many of you have heard truth about God, you've heard the truth about Scripture, and you have made a mental assent, okay? So you can actually say, okay, I believe that. Isaac could say, at this point, all right, I believe that you don't want me to go to Egypt, and I believe that you're going to take care of me. What evidence is there? What evidence? Well, the first thing is, God doesn't stop a guy from going to Egypt unless he already had his bags packed and was heading to Egypt, right? Why didn't he say, hey, don't go to Babylon or don't go up to, you know, Russia? Uh, he doesn't say that. He wasn't pointed that direction. He was headed to Egypt. He was headed to the place where everyone would go, the Nile River Delta. He thought there would be sustenance down there for him. So God stops him. The first thing that he does is he says, I'm not going to go that direction. But then he makes an investment in the location where he stays. And he says, I'm going to plant right here. It's a declaration. It's not just that I'm not going to Egypt. God, you said that in a time of famine, you would meet me right here. So I'm going to dig till I find water. And I'm going to stay in this place of famine. And you're going to sustain me. It was an act of faith. I will stay here. His feet might have been pointed to Boise, but he was staying in Salem. <laughs> Take that without too much of a jab. The average time that it would take to dig, to build, to establish a well, three months to one year, even for a wealthy man. You had to have it go through the expansion and the shrinkage of a uh, water table and all of the other things. It took vision, awareness of need, and planning. The act of digging well was an, an investment and a declaration. But also the wells were a blessing to not just the owner but the community. It says here that uh, Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. The Philistines had stopped up and he gave them the same names. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley. So they not only reopened those wells, but they moved into the valley because they were expanding so much. And they found a well, a spring of water, or literally living water there. And the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, the water is ours. Now they didn't dig it, okay? They hadn't put any kind of investment in that area, but because that water would allow for their, their strength, the, the blessing that was happening to the community, as others began to be blessed by it, they said, hey, that belongs to us. That should be ours. Notice that the man of God blesses them. It doesn't say that he, uh, uh, that he fought with them, even though he could have overpowered them. He didn't destroy them. He gives them a well. He moves and he digs another well, another battle, and then he finally digs a third one. But the blessing to the owner is one thing. Blessing to the community was evident. There is... Uh, Concerns and battles that still happen even today about uh, whether or not you should tax a church. I was looking at uh, some articles about 
the taxing of pastors and churches. It's coming up over and over again. Uh, A pretty intriguing series of discussions since 1996. What value does a church actually add to a community? Sociologist uh, Ram Kanan has been researching the economic value of churches for more than two decades. He writes uh, some really amazing articles. And they, this uh, magazine, uh, an economic magazine, actually had an interview with him. He said, because some congregations would almost certainly close their doors without tax exemptions, uh, the question has come up, should we let these nonprofits continue to live the way that they are? And he says this, after he has been... Uh, researching all these things. He says, now, I'm not a person of faith. Hear that. I'm not a person of faith. I am a social scientist. I started to look at a congregation as an economic engine. What value uh, to that urban congregation on average does it contribute to a local uh, community? In the first study in 1996, we went to 10 congregations in Philadelphia. We looked at the replacement value of just social services. How do they bless the mental health and people finding jobs in the community? And on average, in the downtown borough, it was $140,000 benefit per year to that local community. Social services are only a small component of what a congregation does. So next we looked at 90 churches in Philadelphia, Chicago, and Fort Worth and all the ways that they contribute to the local economy. And this is a more recent study. They just wrapped up some of the details of it. And he says the average range of benefit to the local economy and to the community is $1.2 to $2.5 million annually every single year to the community and the benefit that a congregation brings in. How do you arrive at those numbers? He said, there's over 100 things that we measured. He said, but first, I want you to understand that we're working with experts in valuation. For the sake of discussion, he says, I want you to understand that we use the lowest possible valuation that we could. He said, in one source, the average cost of a suicide, and I, I want you to hear this, that there is no way to measure the pain that a suicide can cause in a community. But in a place where suicides are on a rise, they began to measure what is the cost economically and just the toll it takes on the individuals in that community. And they said, if you were going to put a crass number to it, he said, it's hard to measure this. But $100,000 in these different communities was what they said it, it, it leveled out to. That's what it costs a family and a community in that short season. He says, you take um, what the church does to bless an individual. If somebody says, we were able to counsel or engage with somebody who was truly suicidal and be able to not just talk them off of it for a day, but walk them away from that uh, for that season. They were helping that person. He says, "Um, but I am sure that there are other people also who would help that individual. So I only allowed the church, even if they credited the church for their change of mind, I only give the church half of that valuation. But then I'm going to say, well, maybe next year the person might still be back in, in, in crisis and they're in another community. So I give church credit for only one year. And then I divided it by 20 and I gave the church 120th of 50% of the cost and their benefit to social work. He says, that's how I evaluated everything. And still I come up with the number that 1.2 to $2.5 million benefit is given to that local community, to the people around. They invest in such significant ways we cannot understand. This is a guy who's not a person of faith. 
He said churches are a benefit, even though people are on the rise, shaking their hands saying, you don't belong here, you're taking up business space. You don't belong here, we need to tax you. He says, I think they would gain about $7,000 in average on taxes, but taxes won't change the budget of the local municipality. We know this. He says, but I always ask, why doesn't somebody want to tax a museum? I've never seen a museum serving soup to the hungry. I'm not talking as somebody who hates museums. I love them. But there's no museum in Philadelphia where you can drop your kids off at 1 p.m. and pick them up at 6. He said, I haven't called the head of a museum at 2 a.m. when my dad was sick and tell them I have a personal problem. Even if I'm on the board, I can't call them. But people can call a clergy member and say, my father is dying in the hospital and it is common for them to show up and to walk with us through it. How do you put the value on a church? There's a lot of arguments even today about whether or not there is a value. This isn't, folks, we are participating this morning in something that is of great value because we worship the King of Kings. Amen? Yeah. But in addition, unbelievers that are studying the result of what God does in the life of a kind-hearted individual and the impact they have on their community, they see it when they put their mind to it. When God changes a soul, he changes that impact to communities. It's an investment in a declaration. It's a blessing to the owner and the community. But also opposition clarified the commitment. We're running out of time. I just want you to notice a couple of the names here. Essek, uh, it says that the first time they had an argument there. You just did this for yourself. It, uh, literally, the well's name was argument. But the second one was sitna, accusation. Uh, this is an Old Testament word you might recognize differently. It's used other places as Satan, all right? You have a human opposition and a spiritual opposition to them digging wells and benefiting that area. But the final stage is Rehoboth, spacious. God has blessed us and made room for us. Uh, this is the idea. The idea is that you're in a place. Imagine for a moment that you're a small family that's growing. You have more kids uh, that are being added to your number, but you're in a tiny little dwelling and it always feels tight. And you try to move to another location, but it turns out uh, that you had another child. And now all of a sudden, all of your plans are cramped once again. You're in this tight space. And finally, by God's grace, you're able to provide a home. You're able to spread out and not step on all of the children's toys every morning. Rehoboth, that's what he says. God has made space for us. He blessed us with our family, but he's also blessed us with space. That's what Isaac says. He begins to settle. Let's bring this home. I want you to notice something that we all crave. The wrap-up of this story happens here. It says from there, so Isaac has gone from a guy who struggles and, and fought, has failures much like his father. Just a side note, we quite often stop with the failures of our fathers. We don't follow through to see their faith. He sees the failure. He fails just like his dad did. God was good just like he always is. And Isaac begins to have this turnaround in his story. He settles in a place where he says, I'm going to dig. I'm going to stay. Even though he was battling with those people around, he does not leave. And then it says, from there he went up to Beersheba. Now remember, this is the place where Abraham lands at the very end. This is the place where that exact same plot line in Abraham's life came to resolution. This is where he was raised. 
These are the stories that he remembers. But he'd always heard the stories. He hadn't lived it for himself. Now he is living the story of faith. He goes up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't be afraid for I'm with you. I'll bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. But it happens two times in the same chapter. Bookends. Isaac, you're starting to get it. So he built an altar there to the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Azuzah, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? You hated me. You wanted me away from you. And they replied, we have clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We think that there should be an oath between us two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us just as we have not harmed you. Verse 30, so he prepared a banquet for them. They ate and drank. They got up early in the morning, swore an oath to each other, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. We have a picture of that place, Beersheba, the well of the oath, as it's seen today. Uh, This is a picture that actually at the very beginning we had one of these when we were first coming up with that idea of ancient wells, new season. Uh, The well is right there in the middle, and then there's a feeding trough that would have been there for local herdsmen. There's another picture that we have of the uh, well that's been there forever, so you can get a picture of the size. Look how many people are around this. There's actually a visitor center that you can go to. There's this well and one other that they attribute, whether or not this is the case. You know it always, uh, when you go on some of these tours, you run into multiple opinions. But they have run into this spot where one was dug by Abraham, the other one dug by Isaac, these two wells that are right near to each other that you can visit to this day. An entire town that is still grown up with those stories in their minds. The question in, verse, in chapter 26 is how do we go from looking back to the good old days and telling those stories? How do you go from talking about somebody else's victory to living in victory yourself? You start by going back to those same old truths, those ancient truths. It wasn't the person's prowess, strength, or significance that set them free. If there's any freedom at all, it is the God of the universe, the Almighty One. It is Christ who sets us free, amen? Ancient truth, we go back to those wells and our story takes a new shape. God often meets us at the intersection of devotion and sacrifice. That's where he met Isaac. Isaac's actions and their result are meant to guide and inspire us today. As I said at the beginning, we're a a church that doesn't pass the plate, but we also do believe in transformation. We believe that God has done something in our church. As an elder team, this is what we have come to the conclusion of. We have prayed and over and over again just said, Lord God, this is what we are facing. The amount of folks in the room, the amount of need in the community, uh, the way that you are using our church to impact not just uh, our little space, but other believing congregations, we believe you're calling us to act. All of the metrics are there, and next week Pete and I will talk a little bit about those things and what does it mean for us as we move forward? What are we investing in? What would the shape of the building Um, look like. All of those metrics are there. The one thing that is of concern is just financially. It's not fun to tighten our belt and participate as a family, right? I mean, well, it's fun if you know you're headed to Disneyland. 
But one of the things that we're looking at right now is we really believe that as a community of believers, as a group of faithful believers, that God can use us not just to build a structure, but that he can use us to impact this valley for generations to come. We truly believe that. And we believe that God is calling us as a group of united believers to just pray about what our investment is and then to sink this season, put our whole heart into this effort. We're asking you this morning to just start praying with us. Uh, We're not a church that moves by guilt, all right? Still focused on grace, but we are asking you, between you and the Lord, uh, if you would join us in this endeavor. So we have these uh, call to prayer cards that are here, and I believe that you can get those on the way out if you weren't handed them on the way in. Grab this card and put that someplace where you're gonna see it every single day. We're asking you to join us in praying for um, the church-wide unity around our vision and three gifts to the city. We'll talk a little more about about that next week. That we'd have a clear direction from the Lord and the best plan for addressing our current and future needs on campus. An unwavering commitment to seeking God's direction as a church, as individuals, and as leaders. Favor with the builders and city officials during the planning and executing phases. Grace for each other as challenges arise during construction. And for God to prepare each of our hearts to participate in a unique and sacrificial way. We're asking you to consider how you would be a part. Just prayer right now. Will you join us in digging these ancient wells? Remembering we're we're not trying to start something new or say something new about God. We're just finding our place in his story. We're clinging to that same old truth. We're seeing God bless it. And as we are going where we are going, we're asking you to join us. Lord, will you help us make room for what you are doing? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to help us. Help us to be able to see in these storylines, in this, these plot points that we see with Isaac, there is a significant transition that happens. He goes from knowing about you but not following real faithfully to following faithfully and encountering some headwinds, hardship, to in the very end, Father, following you with full faith and watching you bless every step along the way. Father, we pray that you would help us to see these principles, to passionately pursue you. Help us to chase after you And for our faith to put on display in some demonstrative way that we are digging here, that we are investing in this location, that we're going to put our hope in you and our heart right here in this place. We pray, Father, that you would help us. Help us to right now consider what it would cost us. What is it that we sacrificially would give Financially, what is it that we are going to give ourselves to when it comes to our spiritual investment? How are we going to help those that are around us? Father, we pray that you would be on display with those decisions. Help us to be faithful to you in this season, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.